0: Daniel nine sixteen to 19 O Lord according to all your righteous acts let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city Jerusalem your holy hill because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us now therefore O Lord O our God Listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy, and for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act, delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Please pray with me. Uh, Father, we come before you and we just uh, just ask for your help. Lord, we ask for your spirit to be at work uh, through your word to affect uh, love for Jesus Christ to affect in us um, a desire for him and and change into his likeness. So God, we need you. We ask this from you. In Jesus' name, amen. So sin, sin is something that has devastating consequences. You know, there's actually a famous example of this in the Bible, and that's the example of David's sin with Bathsheba. You remember the situation? He, He sees a woman bathing on the roof, and he invites her home, to to his bedroom and he commits adultery and then she gets pregnant and David tries to cover the situation up by killing her husband. It's a pretty horrible, breathtaking situation. But the judgment that comes from God in that situation is also breathtaking. It's intense. Famously, the later years of David's life are filled with this situation where the kingdom begins, begins to unravel. His family... Nathan prophesies to him, his family will always have the sword at work in it. We see that even as Absalom rises up, his own son rises up against David. And there's moments as you read this story, you just wonder, like what's David thinking? Is he running off? I mean, he's got to be doing this, running off to his bedroom and locking the door and crying out, "God, how long is this going to last for? How long will this continue?" But even as Daisy read for us, we realized this morning that David in the Bible is not the only one who asks the how long question. In this series, in the book of Daniel, we have talked a lot about living in exile. And you have to believe that these people who were living in exile, they cried out. They cried out, how long, oh Lord? How long is it going to last? I just want to point out to you this morning, that this, I think, is the question on Daniel's own mind that leads to the beginning of chapter 9. Because nearly 70 years have gone by since Daniel and his people were marched off naked out of their own city and into Babylon. Their lives have been devastated. They've felt God's justice and they're beginning to wonder about his mercy. Maybe you've asked that question today. Maybe you're wondering right now in this room if there's mercy for you. Maybe you feel low and devastated by sin because of something that maybe you've done this week. I just want to tell you right now there's good news for you this morning in Daniel chapter 9 because no matter where you're at or what sins you feel burdened by this morning our main point in this chapter in Daniel 9 is this. God's justice is never without mercy to those who confess their sin and run to him for forgiveness. So this morning I have a simple three-point outline and it's all about God's mercy. It's what we see in Daniel 9. We see, number one, the mercy that Daniel recognized. We see that in verses 1 to 2. Number two, the mercy that Daniel prayed for. We see that in verses 3 through 19. And then number three, the mercy that God promised in 24 27. So first, let's just turn now to the mercy that Daniel recognized in verses 1 to 2. You can read along with me. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent Amid, who was made king—I had to practice Ahasuerus, by the way. that was That's a hard word—who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans in the first year of his reign. I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass— before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. So again, I just want to point out that like chapters 7 and 8, chapter 9 is time-stamped. You see that in verse 1. You see that right there in the, verse, in the first year, at the beginning of the verse, of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus. So if you remember that in chapter 5, Darius the Mede was the king who had come and he had oft Belshazzar right? We've seen the, the assumed rule of Babylon pass from that, that era and move over to the, the era of the, of the age of Medo-Persia. Babylon's gone, Medo-Persia has begun. Or in other words, in the context of the book, if you think of Daniel 2, we've, we've seen the progression in that statue from the head of gold to the chest of silver. Or in Daniel 7, we've seen the next beast arrive. But I want you to pause here for a second, because it's one thing to say that. Right? It's one thing to just observe this macro level, this passing of power. But we've got to kind of imagine what would it be like for a superpower to be switched, to be swapped in our living. So I've got I to gotta ask you to a little, do a little imagining with me. Imagine that you're writing a letter to maybe your friend or your grandmother from Vancouver. And you're writing, In the first year of the exalted Emperor Putin, having conquered his enemies Trudeau and Trump, and having seized the kingdoms of America and Canada. I think we'd be surprised. Although, politically, you know, things are full of surprises these days. But Daniel, I want you to know, wasn't surprised. You can look what he says in verse 2. Daniel says, I, Daniel, I perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord... To Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. I love this. You, do you see what's happening here? Here Daniel is reading a letter that was sent at the beginning of exile from Jeremiah the prophet. Daniel 9, verse 2 is literally a verse about a guy in the Bible reading the Bible. I love that. That's pretty cool. I mean, that says more about me than I want to reveal. But what did Jeremiah say? God spoke through Jeremiah, in actually in Jeremiah 29, verse 10, about the end of the exile, and he said this. Jeremiah writes, For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise, and bring you back to this place. And you have to imagine Daniel having his devotions as a transfer of power is settling in, and Belshazzar is dead. And he's reading, when 70 years are completed for Babylon. And Daniel just stops and he thinks, wait a second, 70 years are pretty near to to completion, and and I've just seen a transfer of power. What does that mean? And what it meant was that his prayer, and the prayer of all the exiles of, how long, O Lord, was almost answered. The mercy Daniel recognized in his devotions that morning in the first year of Darius was that God was a hair's breadth away from ending their exile. And I love this. Daniel sees the things that God's promised. He's seen this mercy, but he doesn't just presume on it. That, you know, we might do that, I think, sometimes. But but he actually participates in it by obeying the rest of what God said through Jeremiah to the exiles. Because Jeremiah didn't just stop with that, Recognition of the 70 years period in 29, he also told them in Jeremiah 29 verse 12 that after the 70 years in Babylon, after they're ended, quote, you will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all of your heart. And these words from Jeremiah lead us to our second point this morning because our second point is the way that, that Daniel seeks God. Our second point is the mercy that Daniel prayed for. And there are essentially two halves to his prayer. He prays in verses 3 to 19, but in 3 to 15, that's the first half, he confesses his and his people's sin. And then in verses 16 to 19, he asks for God's mercy. So do you notice that? That first there's confession, and then there's petition for mercy. And we can learn from that, I think. And the lesson is this, humble, free, free acknowledgement of our sin and submission to God's righteous judgment, that always precedes his mercy. It always comes first. So let's unpack Daniel's prayer a little bit. Let's jump in here. Notice that in nearly every verse, Daniel confesses, and he confesses using first-person language. He uses the words I and we a lot. I'll just just show you two examples here. Look at first uh, the end of verse four. We have sinned, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. And also look at verse 7. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness. Okay, that's that's God on his part. But to us, open shame. And nearly in every verse, he's saying this kind of thing all the way through this confession. Daniel pours out his heart to God and and he says something. He says, God... I recognize the problem is us. And Daniel doesn't justify his sin. He doesn't give some wimpy confession like we do sometimes. Have you ever done this? Have you ever, you, you talk to, you, to someone you confess to a friend in the church, or maybe you, you're in your prayer life, and you're like, God, yeah, I got pretty angry back there, and I might have said a few things that I regret, but they kind of had it coming. You know, like, like, he did cut me off, God right or or what about you know maybe something a bit more serious and or seemingly serious when we we're, we're confessing i've been in a lot of groups you know i've done this myself and, and you're like god maybe maybe i was maybe i was lustful but i i deserved it you know i deserved to indulge you know i didn't have what i wanted what i needed and you didn't provide for me we justify don't we we justify but Daniel doesn't do that. Daniel owns his sin. Look again at verse seven to you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame there's there's not a hint of self-justification there. Daniel knows that he and his people are being judged because of one reason, because of their sin. And Daniel knows that God is just, but you know what else? Daniel also knows that God is merciful, and he knows it because he knows. His Bible. Look at verse 13. As it is written, he's praying, he's asking for mercy, as it is written in the law of Moses that all this calamity has come upon us. Don't miss this. As it is written. You know what that means? That means that Moses knew when he was writing, you know, it says, as it is written in the law of Moses that all these things have happened. That means that Moses knew what was coming for Israel, way before this happened. And you have to ask yourself the question, if Moses knew, then who else knew? God knew. God knew that his people would rebel against him. And God had prophesied through Moses that it would happen, but God also revealed something else in his Bible that Daniel knew. God showed Moses that even after exile, he would show mercy to his people. That's why Daniel could read Jeremiah who came later and who told him to seek God. That God would restore them if they sought sought him with all of his heart, all of their hearts. So you know what that means for us? It means that God's love, this is awesome, it means that God's love is, is orders of magnitude greater than our own. You know that you typically choose your friend's based on some kind of thing that they bring to you, right? You know, you choose your spouse, but she's attractive. Uh, guys, if that's not what you chose your spouse, don't speak up. Um, or we choose a friend for personal benefit, right, of some kind. We know, we, we want the people that we, that we love for the reasons that are kind of selfish and, and bring something to us. But God doesn't love that way. God's love isn't for the lovely. It's for sinners. And that's really good news for somebody like me. It's good news because that means that God's love is in order to change me, to change you and I, and to transform us from people who are spiritually adulterous, people who are wicked, who turn away from him, and to make us faithful, spotless, gloriously shining, brilliant, holy brides. That's what he's doing. That's what he's doing. And Daniel is praying now as a member of a people who are in exile in Babylon because of their spiritual adultery. Their sin has been committed already. The punishment has been poured out. But because of what Daniel knew about God's character and love from the Bible, Daniel could turn to God in the second half of this prayer after confessing his sin and he could petition him. Not because Israel deserved it, but on the basis of God's incredible love and on the basis of God's mercy. Period. Look at verse 18. Oh my God, Incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness. Amen. But because of your great mercy. Amen. Daniel just pours his heart out to God in these petitions in, in 16 to 19, the passage that Daisy read for us. Daniel's a sinner. He's got nothing to offer, but because of God's love and mercy, Daniel knows that he has everything to gain from God. And the thing I love about this passage is that God doesn't stand at arm's length from Daniel. We don't just see the prayer, you know, the chapter's over, you move on to the next page. Even though Daniel's just spilled his guts about his and his people's sin, then God answers him. And in verses 20 to 23, we see that uh, God sent the angel Gabriel to Daniel with a message, the message of the mercy that he would bring through Jesus. And before we get into that message and what it contains in the next point, I want to show you something about the way that God sent an answer in verse 23. Look at verse 23. Gabriel says this to Daniel. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you. Highlight this in your Bible. For you are greatly loved. Isn't that wonderful? Remember, what the order of events was that led up to verse 23. One, Daniel just confessed his sin. He didn't hide it. Two, Daniel asked God for mercy. And then three, God sent an angel with a message of love and acceptance from God. That's straight gospel. And I just want to remind you that that you can be confident too. We, We stand in a different place than Daniel because we've seen God's love displayed on the cross through Jesus Christ in its fullest extent. So what happens in this passage can happen for us too. We can confess our sin and come to God, ask for mercy and receive it and hear the words, you are greatly loved. Praise the Lord. So that's Daniel's prayer. The next point this morning that we're now led to is a place where God answers Daniel's prayer with the prophetic promise of mercy. The mercy that God promised here in verses 24 to 27. But like a lot of prophetic writing in the Bible, this is actually a really tough passage of scripture. And complicating matters, look at your Bibles um, if you have them open with you. Most of your Bibles would even have footnotes about alternative English translations that would be sprinkled throughout these several verses because the Hebrew is difficult it's a a tricky passage famously so so why am I saying this well because for all these reasons I won't be able to dive into all the particulars in this section but I am going to try and and give you the highlights I just am not going to satisfy all the keeners so James I'm sorry but if you do have questions I'd like to talk with you more uh, so feel free to to email me at Brant at christ city church and um, that 's spelt f r e d at christ city church and and make sure you send the the most difficult questions that you have from this chapter <laughs> and all that being said, I, I do think that we can make some some headway here though there is something that we can say about this with confidence and it 's this verses twenty four to twenty seven if they 're about anything are about this. The 70-week vision is about more than restoration from exile in Babylon. The 70-week vision is about God's ultimate restoration for his people that would one day come through Jesus. That's what we're talking about here. So, all right, let's let's try and unpack this. I'm a little nervous. First, uh, look with me at the very beginning of verse 24. Daniel writes, 70 weeks... Or we could say seven sevens in Hebrew, and I'm going to to refer to it that way throughout our decreed. So what's that about? Why seventy sevens? Well, remember that the beginning of the chapter and this whole situation between God and Daniel began to develop when Daniel perceived something that God had said about exile back in Jeremiah's day. Right? Back at the beginning, God had said that the people would be restored after 70 years from exile. And then here Daniel is thinking, great, 70 years have gone by. God's going to restore us now. And he confesses a sin and he asks for mercy. But God responds to Daniel a little differently than expected. He says 70 years of exile in Babylon, yes. But there's more. There would be 70 times seven years to the time when God's ultimate restoration would happen through Jesus. And restoration through Jesus... This is why I get water up here. And and restoration through Jesus would finally deal with their sinful hearts that brought them to exile in the first place. That's important. To say it another way, we could say it would take seven years to get the people out of Babylon, but it would take 70 times seven years to get Babylon out of the people. And you might be wondering where does this idea of an ultimate restoration come from? Well, look at all the things that are listed about this restoration in verse 24. Look with me now. Verse 24 says, "70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city, to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place." It's a lot of things. God's saying that getting the people back to Israel is only a small piece of the puzzle. Verse 24 states that not only would God restore the people to Israel, he would once and for all restore the people by dealing with their sin. How? How is that going to happen? Well, look at verse 25. Verse 25 says, Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and to rebuild Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince. I just want you to stop right there in the middle. Do you see the way the prophecy of restoration, it actually, it hinges on a person. You see that? God will accomplish all of this through the coming of an anointed prince. I'm not going to give any prizes if you guess who that is. So to summarize where we are so far, it's tricky stuff here. We know that 77s are a period of time we know that the restoration will be more than just a return from Babylon. It will be a restoration that deals with sin. And we see that all this will occur through the coming of anointed prince. But how, we might ask, will it actually unfold? What, what's, what's the progress? What's the process here? Well, look back with me at verse 25. From the going out of the word to restore and rebuild Jerusalem to the coming of anointed prince, there shall be seven sevens, or seven weeks, and for sixty-two sevens sevens, or weeks, it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time, we are officially in the weeds. Uh, but you see the way here that there are seven sevens and then 62 sevens. There's a vision of two periods of time. The seven week period was about the immediate restoration from Babylon. So after Daniel, the people did go back to Israel. It's in, the, it's in our Bibles under the leadership of men uh, like Ezra and Nehemiah who have books of the Bible written about them. It actually happened. They went back, things were rebuilt. And it was a troubled time, like it says here, because they were persecuted by guys with cool names, or maybe names that you want to give your eldest son, like Sanballat. And if you read Ezra and Nehemiah, though, even though the restoration to the land, rebuilding of the city, started restructuring the temple, even though that had happened, it felt anticlimactic. Because the restoration that Israel hoped for wasn't really accomplished at the end of that period. And we know why, don't we? Because the fullness of the restoration that God promised in verse 24, it doesn't come for another 62 years, or uh, sorry, 62 periods of sevens. 62 sevens had to go by until Jesus, the anointed Messiah, would come and arrive on the scene and bring about that fullness of restoration that he longed for. But this vision doesn't just tell us about Jesus coming to restore his people. It tells us more. It tells us how he's going to do it. Look at verse 26. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. Or very literally as one commentator translates, after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off, but not for himself. Think back to Jesus' life. How did how did Jesus' ministry end? crucifixion on a Roman cross, right? And why? Why did that happen? Was it for his own sin that he was put there? No. God's mercy revealed in this prophecy to Daniel was that Jesus was cut off, but not for himself. He was cut off for sinners like you and me. I think that verse 26 is actually saying the same kind of thing about Jesus that Isaiah said in Isaiah 53 verse 5. You know what he said there? He says, but he was pierced. Jesus was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Was he pierced for himself? Was he crushed for himself? Was he, was this a Messiah who was cut off for himself? No, the text is clear. He was not cut off for himself, but for us. Because restoration to the land of Israel through Ezra and Nehemiah could never Deal with the sacrifice that was necessary that came about through Jesus. We could never be granted everlasting forgiveness before God in that, that early first seven year period. We had to have Jesus come to be cut off for us. But here's the thing there's a warning here for the exiles and also for us. Because if God's great restoration promises of mercy only come through Jesus, then we need to pay attention, because to miss Jesus is to miss God's mercy. And sadly, in this prophecy, we actually see that the way judgment was poured out on those who rejected Jesus and who crucified him. And you can see that in the second half of verse 26. Look at it with me. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war desolations are decreed. This is a, a passage about judgment. But first off, who is the prince who is to come in the context of this passage? Who is that? Well, verse 25 clearly stated that the anointed, the anointed one is the prince, right? And I think that means here that we're talking about Jesus. Does that seem to make sense? Yes. So then verse 26 says that Jesus' people will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Who were Jesus' people from Daniel's perspective? The Jewish people, were they not? And you know, as crazy as this sounds, they were responsible for the destruction of Jerusalem and the sanctuary, just like verse 26 says. So the historical facts are these. After Jesus was rejected by his own people, after he was crucified, you know what happened? Jewish opposition to Rome increased. And it climaxed in AD 70 in this rebellion where Rome came and he crushed them. Rome came and they crushed them. Destruction of the temple that Jesus talked about in Matthew 24, that happened then. But the cause of that destruction wasn't actually Rome. It was directly because of Jewish unbelief in the Messiah that God had sent and his judgment poured out against them. Rejecting Jesus always results in God's judgment. And what I think we need to see here is that even the crucifixion of Jesus was part of God's plan of restoration. Don't, don't miss that. Hear that again. We see here that even the crucifixion of Jesus was part of God's plan of restoration because only the death and the resurrection of Jesus are able to deal with our sin and to bring us that forgiveness that we need before God. And this is amazing. Do you know what the result of that forgiveness is for you in this room, for us? It's that now because of your forgiveness that you've received before God, God can pour out his spirit into your hearts so that you don't need a physical temple because you've been created as a temple through Jesus. His dwelling place is with you now through Jesus' sacrifice. The 77th prophecy was fulfilled finally when in 8033, after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, He was raised and a new temple was built but not with human hands. The temple of God on earth which you are a part of here as Christ City Church. Praise the Lord. It's people like you and me. People like you and I who are guilty like Daniel who are sinful like the Jews who rejected Jesus but who are forgiven because of the incredible mercy of God. So what do we make of all this? I have two points of application this morning. First, I think we need to recognize that our God has a plan. I think we need to be confronted that even in the midst of sin and judgment and difficulty and trial, our God's revealed himself to be at work for the good of his people whom he deeply loves. Daniel 9 teaches us that, exile and suffering and rebellion and even crucifixion of the son of God they're not outside God's incredibly good purposes and if that's true then here's the thing that we need to take home with us if that's true then nothing else in your life that you're presently experiencing not even when you lose your job not even when your friends desert you that's not outside of God's purposes for good not even when your loved ones die. Not even when you feel trapped by your circumstances and you can't you can't get out of them. Not even when you've lost your mobility and you have chronic pain. Not even when the relationships that you long for just just don't work out the way that you would hope. No matter no matter what you're trying. Not even when your dreams aren't realized. God's still in control. God is still good, and he sees you, and he knows you. He values you, and he is still at work in your life for good. Because he loves you. You are greatly loved. You are greatly loved. And the question is, how will you respond to God in those trials? Will you believe what Romans 8.28 says? That even suffering, that that God works all things together, even suffering, to the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purposes. Will you believe that? Will you recognize that sometimes that good's this macro good that we all pray for, the glory of God seen in our neighborhoods and in our lives and people coming to faith, but sometimes it's also just good at a micro level where through that suffering you and I learn that God is a God who deeply loves us. We cherish him more. When our idols are stripped away. And we hold fast to Jesus. So here's the question. Will you humbly receive whatever he gives you? Will you receive what he's given you right now in this moment? Or are you going to keep fighting him? Don't fight him. Receive his goodness. Trust that he is a purpose. The second point of application for us is this. Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome, they all fought for their own greatness but they they end up being crushed by Jesus who's a crucified king who didn't fight for his own glory but who laid his life down sacrificially for undeserving sinners like you and me Jesus built a better kingdom than Babylon and he didn't and he did it through his sacrifice you know someone i read this week said this about the beginnings of Jesus kingdom being lived out through the church and the transformation that happened. He said, Christianity not only took over an empire, it radically altered the lives of those living in it. It opened the door to public policies and institutions to tend to the poor, the weak, the sick, and the outcast as deserving members of society. It was a revolution that affected government practices, legislation, art, literature, music, philosophy, and the very understanding of billions of people about what it means to be human. Through a crucified king, a new kind of kingdom is built, not by pride and striving and power, but by transformed people like you and me, living the love that we've received from God because we've met Jesus. This is instructive for us today, I think, because we live in a city that's, that's like Babylon. We live in a city that postures itself as beautiful and as lovable, but that has the same problems that Babylon and the others did. All of that posturing is only a thin veneer over the reality of the deep sin that's within us and that's all around us. We can't get away from that. And you know, it's not just in our cities, though. It's in us, right? Sometimes we come to this church. Sometimes we we come here and we posture in this church, too. We try to look good. We try to show that we have it all together. We try to hide our sin And in doing that, I think we show that we've been shaped not by a crucified Savior, but by a beastly city that feels the need to fight for its own glory. You know, your sin was so heinous, and God's love was so great, that the incarnate Son of God came down to earth to die for you. Don't forget that. None of us here brought anything into the kingdom of Christ when God saved us. We came into the kingdom with our heads bowed and our hands uplifted, Begging for the mercy of God through Jesus Christ, and He gave it to us out of His great love. Why is it that we forget that? Isn't it true that that we come into the kingdom that way so often? You know, you're, you're walking in, and oh God, I just need You. Oh God, I have nothing. Oh God, I'm a sinner. Oh God, Your love is so great. And then a few years go by, walking around the kingdom. You know, you know, Jesus was pretty good. He taught me a thing or two. I had most things figured out, though. You know, I was. He helped me a bit. You know, don't we kind of do that? Right? We, we try to show that now it's about me and somehow I've accomplished something. I'm the one that's really got my foot to the door of the kingdom. You know, we begin to hide our sin. We work hard to keep up those appearances and we avoid accountability and we even become, I think, dishonest about who we really are. We do it all to protect ourselves. You know that this only hurts our witness and it only hurts us. What this world needs and what I need and what you need is to see a bunch of people here in this church who are honest about their sin. We need to see a bunch of people here who are honest that we're weak, that we have nothing, that that all I have is Christ. As we what saying this morning. There's nothing more encouraging to me than having one of you guys come up to me and tell me about how you've, had to rely completely on God's grace this week because you failed. These are hard conversations, aren't they? But they're encouraging conversations because they highlight Jesus' presence and his gospel at work in the most sensitive and deep places in our hearts. They show the power of a crucified king because of our honesty being displayed and his power being displayed in our weaknesses. The gospel of a Savior crucified for sinners, you know what it is? It's the antidote to Facebook envy. Because it calls a bluff on trying to build your own kingdom like the world does, by posturing and looking good and trying to come out on top. You don't have to project your best Instagram life in the church. You've already admitted that you're a sinner and you have fled to Jesus for mercy so that he, not you, can increase. And so that you, not him, can increase can continue to decrease and to reveal his power at work in you. Jesus is our Savior. He's been cut off. Let's live that out. Let's live that out and show people it's the truth of being honest. So in conclusion, we've seen in Daniel 9 that our sin has devastating consequences. We've seen that God is perfectly holy and just to condemn us, but we've seen that our God never pours out justice without mercy for sinners who acknowledge their sin and run to him for forgiveness. Restoration is what we need. Isn't restoration what we need here this morning, Christ City? Because apart from the mercy of God, we're no different than Daniel was. Apart from the mercy of God, we're no different than the Jews that rejected him. You know, I just want to pause and say, you know, sin and its consequences in your life, let's kind of return to that first idea. They might have you crying out right now, how long O oh Lord if that's true, I want you to see what's in this passage. I want you to, to revel in the mercy of God. Rejoice that he is a God who's loved you through Jesus Christ. That's what Daniel 9 said, about. Let's pray. Father, uh, we come before you as sinners that are deeply in need of your mercy. God, we come before you as, as sinners who are in need of your grace, and we rejoice that you provided for us, jesus christ our crucified savior who's been building us into a new kind of kingdom a kingdom where we're transformed by his love and show it to others we praise you for that and we thank you and in his name amen thanks for listening for more information about christ city church in vancouver please visit christcitychurch.ca we invite you to join us in praying that god's kingdom would come in vancouver as it is in heaven